says these words. It says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. The word of the Lord this morning. As we've mentioned, of course, over and over, we have been discussing the idea of living faithfully, even in a world that is falling apart. Living faithful lives, doing what it is to represent, doing what is needed to represent Christ in a world that is full of chaos. That is our duty. That is our supreme command. That is our supreme objective is to simply get up and live a life that is faithful to God each and every day. No matter what choices we make, no matter what we have to do, our calling is simply to be faithful to the One who has changed our lives. We know that the Christian life is a journey. A journey that begins the moment you accept Christ as Savior and ends or is fulfilled when you stand before Him face to face and you hear Him say, well done. That is our goal. That is our journey to live this life and to honor and glorify God and finally to stand before Him one day and as we sang about this morning, hear Him say, well done. The Apostle Paul summed it up at the end of his life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 and 7 and 8. He says these words, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now that's what all of us should be able to say in our lives. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I would rather not say it knowing any moment my head was about to be separated from my neck like the Apostle Paul was, okay? That's not really the way I want to go out, but I guess if that's God's will, then (laughs) give me the grace to do it, right? 
But regardless, whenever our time comes, whether we live our average of 78 years or whatever the life expectancy is here in our country or some of you are already past 78 years, you're saying, wait a second here. (laughs) Whether Jesus comes before we're done with church this morning or whatever may happen to us, we want to hear him say, well done. Paul said, in, first, in verse 8 of 2 Timothy 4, Therefore there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, but not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. In other words, what Paul is telling Timothy is this, I have finished my race and I know what is lying ahead. But we know in this journey that there is an enemy of our souls who does not want that to happen. There is someone out there, there is an adversary, an accuser, who wants nothing more than to see us fail and falter and make shipwreck of our lives. There's nothing that he would desire more than for our homes, our families to be busted up, our lives to be ruined, our lives to be shipwrecked, for us to falter on this journey and for Him to be able to look at us and say, there is another one that I have caused to fail Christ, to fail God. And so the challenge for us is this. How do we live faithful lives even to the very end of our journey? Even to the very end of our life, no matter where it may be. And as Peter finishes this book, I think he gives us some clues, some keys on how we can live a faithful life till the very end. So how do we do this? Well, first of all, we can remain faithful by living a life of humility. We can remain faithful, first of all, by living a life of humility. A life that says, I don't have all the answers. I don't have it all figured out. A life that says, maybe I have not arrived just yet and I need others in my life to help lead me and guide me on this journey. Notice here what he says in verse 5. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now we talked last week, of course, about Peter's exhortation to the elders or pastors, the leaders of the church. They were to lead, to shepherd the flock of God who is there in their care, there to do it with a willing heart and a willing spirit. And certainly that is great admonition for myself and others who are in leadership. And I tried to use that to challenge you, no matter what leadership role you are, to to look at your life and to view it along that way. But, But along that line, Peter now turns his attention to those who are younger in the church. There seems to be some debate as to whether or not Peter is talking to young people in the church or older people, or whether he's talking to those who are young in the faith and talking with elders or leaders in the church. But whatever the case might be in this situation, the fact is this principle applies. There should be an attitude of humility, of understanding that God has placed individuals in our lives who are older, wiser, who are in positions of authority, who are in places of leadership, who who may not be in a formal place of leadership, but simply by virtue of their age and their wisdom, they have a lot to offer us 
And we would do well to listen. Whether it's elders of a church, pastoral leaders, or simply older men and women who have lived life and can share wisdom, or, or maybe they're younger you, than you in age, but they've been a Christian longer than you have, but they have wisdom that they can impart to you. You and I as believers need to have an attitude of humility to adopt a posture that says, I will listen, I will be subject, I will heed the advice and direction and guidance that you can provide to me. And I realize on my card in the desk in the office, the card that has my name and under it says the title of pastor. But I also realize I've never had an 18-year-old child before who's now an adult and can do all the stuff that you can as an adult or most of it. Some of you have. You've launched your kids out into the world and I realize I need your wisdom and your guidance. I need your direction. Okay, Some of you have other things in life that you can offer to me and, and I need that wisdom, that guidance, that leading that you can provide. And that is why we as members of the church would do well to develop an attitude of humility. In fact, he takes a step further and he says these words. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. In other words, it's not just for you teenagers. And, and yes, you teenagers, you young adults should listen to all of us old fogies or all of us leaders in the church or whatever else. But even us that are older, even us that are in positions of authority and leadership, we should demonstrate an attitude of listening and humility even towards our young people, even towards our teenagers. Even towards those in the church that have not been around as long, and yet we should realize, you know what, God's calling for us is to address them and to be with them and to do life with them with an attitude of humility. That's why he says, clothe yourselves with humility towards each other. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 20. He says, this shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must do what? He must be your servant. You want to be great? The kingdom of God, great in this world. The best way to do it is by a humble mindset. It's willing to serve. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even Jesus Himself taught His disciples and they didn't get the lesson. Peter didn't get the lesson because Peter and James and John are standing around and they're saying, you know what, I think I'm going to be first in the kingdom of heaven. They're standing around and they're saying, oh, I'm going to sit at your right hand when you come in your kingdom. Jesus has to look at them and say, no, if you really want greatness, it comes to service through humility. And I thought it was interesting. At the cross-references in my Bible, and some of you, if you have a Bible that has cross-references, if you want to learn how to study your Bible, just read that passage and look at the cross-references that are there and just read those and see how they relate to the passage. But, but, but in my Bible here, and there's my cross-references, were listed the verses from John chapter 13. If you know what happens in John 13, Jesus takes the towel at the Last Supper. 
John 13 verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back from God, what did He do? He rose from supper. He laid aside His garments and He clothed Himself. Okay, my translation. The Bible says He took it down. He tied it around His waist. See, this is the towel of service. This is what a servant does. A servant is the one who washes the feet of the guests of the house. Jesus clothes himself with the towel, pours water into the basin, begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Even the Lord, the Creator of heaven and earth, clothed Himself with a humble towel and washed the feet of His disciples. In verse 14, He says, If I then, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Likewise, all of you clothe yourselves with humility one towards another. And notice what Peter then says, Next, he says, because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, I'll be honest with you, I probably misused and misinterpreted this verse more than once because we often talk about those who are proud against God who stand up and, and defy God. But Peter says this in the context of our humility with each other. And he's saying to them, look, if you profess that Christ is Lord of your life and yet you are prideful towards your brothers and sisters, God is going to resist you just as much as someone who stands against God and says, I don't need you, God, in my life. God hates pride of any form, whether it's demonstrated towards Him. The pride towards each other. And if we dare look at one another and think that we are better than them because of our education or our financial status or, or our race or whatever, our gender, whatever you might say, if we dare demonstrate that attitude of superiority and say, I am better than another person, God will resist you. Peter quotes Proverbs 3.24, or at least applies it, I should say. Proverbs 3.24, which says, Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James, of course, repeated the same words in James chapter 4, verse 6. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, the very point is so easy to see if you want God's grace and favor in your life it starts by humbling yourselves before him and before one another and clothing ourselves with humility verse 6 humble yourselves therefore first Peter 5 verse 6 humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The word therefore, of course, is joining what Peter has just said and, and now telling you what to do with it. 
If God's opposed to the proud, if God hates the proud, if God hates pride, which He does, whether in arrogance to each other or to Him, then God also gives grace to the humble. So what is the answer? What is the outcome? The outcome is very simple. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Trust God. Lean upon God. Understand you don't know it all. That He knows better to you. And allow Him to lead and guide and direct. Your lives. Song we sang, when you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. And you don't part the waters so that I can walk through. And you don't give the answers as I cry out to you. What do so many of us do? We, we turn to God and say, God, you said move that mountain and now it's not moved out of my life. The writer says, no, what you need to do is look at Him and say, I trust you. Lean upon you. You know what you are doing. The result of this action is humbling yourselves under God's mighty hand is that God will exalt you. Now let's just take a moment here and clarify. It is true that God does exalt people in this world and in this life. We see an athlete who is humble, loves God, is serving God, and all of a sudden they're given a stage, a national spotlight through their athletic endeavors or whatever the case might be. And they're brought to prominence and God uses their life and we're thankful for that. God uses leaders in business, politicians, whoever that are humbly trusting God. Well, I don't know if God uses our politicians so much, but whatever. Most of them who live for God, who are humble before God, God blesses and exalts their life, but yet there are those who live lives of humility before God. They never see such promotion. They never see such exaltation. They go on day after day, and of course this applies to all of us probably here in this church. We, we go through years of faithfulness to God, and we never see this promotion like we think or like we're sometimes led to believe that God will do for us if we would just humble ourselves. And you know, I, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the end of Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus tells the story of the parable of the sheep and the goats and He tells about the ones who are separated. And the sheep are the ones who, who serve Christ by serving the least, who visited the prisoners, who fed the hungry, who clothed the naked. Jesus said, you did it for the least of those, therefore you've done it to me. And he looked at the goats and he said, I never knew you, depart from me. And they said, when did we never see you hungry and not feed you? And their point was pretty simple. It was, oh, if we would have known that the Messiah was hungry, we would have definitely done something because he would have given us praise and honor. Jesus says, no, it's not about doing it for me. It's about doing it for the least of my children. But what I want you to notice is when all of this separation and this exaltation takes place. Matthew 25, verse 31, it says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another. In other words, those who were exalted were exalted at the end of time. We're exalted at the end of the age. We're exalted when Jesus comes again. And those who are serving without a claim for fanfare, without a claim for attention, simply a humble person wanting to serve God with all of their heart. The point is this, be faithful to serve God where you are. Don't worry about why you're not being highlighted, why people don't recognize you, why you're not being exalted. Be faithful right where you are and trust and allow God to take care of you. We are not doing what we do for the praise of men. We do it for the praise of God and the glory of God and because He is worth serving. And I know, taking care of your children, you don't get recognized, you don't get put in Good Mommy or Good Daddy magazine or you don't get your own television show or Oprah doesn't highlight you. But you're faithful to love those children. One day God exalts and honors and blesses you. Oh, you're faithful there at your job and you don't get put on the wall of some state or federal office building a picture and you don't get put on the back of a dollar bill or a $10 bill. Or Be faithful to serve God and God will take care of you. A part of being faithful, part of remaining humble is found in verse 7. Look at what he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And again, I was thinking about this context of what we're talking about. We we talk about this verse and we tell you, throw your cares on Jesus. Give your burdens to the Lord. Bring him to the altar and he will care for you. But I began to think about that and I began to realize, you know what, when we refuse to let God care for us, when we refuse to allow God to shoulder our burdens, do we not realize that we are actually demonstrating our pride and our arrogance? We are actually telling God, you can't handle them. I must take care of them on my own. And what greater form of pride is it? And to allow God to carry our anxieties and our burden. And say, oh, that's not the reason. I'm not too proud to let God do it. I just, I don't think God cares about me. So you're so proud that you don't think that God would pay attention to you. And God said Himself, when Christ Himself said, I care for every little sparrow that falls to the ground. You see, it's not a measure of God doesn't need to be bothered with my cares and my burdens or He doesn't see me or care. No, you're, you're actually demonstrating pride, saying that I can handle it on my own. I don't need or deserve your help. See, humility comes before God and says, I can't do this. I can't carry my burdens. I must give them to you. I must cast my anxieties upon you. Because you are the only one that cares for me. 
Peter echoes the words of David's in Psalm 55, verse 22, and he says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. I like the words of the old hymn, the old song that says, what a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace. We often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Maybe what you need to do this morning is just humble yourself and say, God, I can't handle this. Will you carry my burden and my load a while? And you know what happens when you do that? Every single time God carries your burden. Why? Because He cares for you. Cast your anxieties upon Him. Cast them all upon Him. So we have the first key to remaining faithful, which is live a life of humility. Then the second key, which is this. We can remain faithful by being alert. We can remain faithful by being alert. Faithfulness will only come as we are constantly paying attention. Constantly alert, constantly understanding what we are up against. I know sometimes it's good to get away and take a break, sleep in, enjoy a day off. And that's fine for this life. Unless your son's boss calls your phone and wakes you up which happened to us the other day. <laughs> There's a mix-up on our schedule. But understand this. You may do that in this world, but you can never do that when it comes to our relationship with God. We must, as Christians, as believers, be constantly alert. That's what verse 8 tells us. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. He is seeking someone to devour. Peter writes these words and he challenges him. And it's not just here at the end of the book. He also stated in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Call is for you and I as believers to constantly live on the lookout, on the alert, with a sober-minded, with a humility about us, with an awareness that there is an enemy out there who wants to destroy us. We don't talk about a lot. The simple truth of the matter is Satan wants to rip us as a church into a million pieces. He wants to take your family and destroy it. I don't know, you, you celebrated 50 years and 60 years of marriage and good for you. You're an example to us. But understand, the enemy would love to tear you apart. 
He would love to separate us however He can and ruin us and throw us to whatever may come our way. The challenge is, will we be alert, aware, sober-minded? Will we constantly be on the guard? I'm not one of those individuals who you know, looks for the devil behind every little rock and every tree and whatever else. Oh, the light turned red. Oh, the enemy is just attacking me. No, the light turns red every 35 seconds, whatever. (laughs) Whatever they're scheduled on, okay? That's not the enemy. Maybe the problem is you should have got up and went to work a little bit sooner instead of trying to get there, you know, 10-minute drive in three minutes. Yeah, I don't think Satan's out there throwing nails on the ground to give you a flat tire. You know, maybe the the contractor, the roofer that was working on a house next to you is a little careless, whatever. But I guarantee you, there's nothing more than he wants to do than to use that red light, to use that flat tire for you to get angry, to scream at your family, to lose your cool, to say things you shouldn't have said. He wants to destroy your life. And you and I as a believer, we must be constantly on the lookout. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher from London 150 years ago, preached a message on this text. and He mentioned three points, which was a far better sermon than what I'd ever give you, so which is why they're still reading his books 150 years later. But he mentioned how Satan is, first of all, full of perpetual activity. He's always looking to destroy. He is ever busy. And that's why I said, you and I cannot think that we're going on vacation and he won't bother us till next week. No, he wants to destroy you on vacation. They say he's full of perpetual activity. He's full of perpetual roaring. See, he's a roaring lion constantly charging, accusing, striving to knock you down over and over and over again. Not only that, but he's seeking to devour you. He wants to consummately destroy your life. We don't talk about devouring when we just take a little sample We talk about devouring when we're at the buffet and we totally wipe it out and they shut down the restaurant because there's no more food. That's what the enemy wants to do to us. Totally destroy us. And we have to be alert. We have to be prepared. We have to be on guard. We have to understand that you and I are in a constant battle for our souls and our hearts and our lives and we must, must, be prepared. We must saturate ourselves in prayer and worship, faithful attendance to church, faithful dedication to God day after day after day, seeking every day to clothe ourselves in the armor of God because we know the enemy is going to wreck and ruin our lives. But notice that Peter didn't just tell us about an enemy desires to destroy us. He also gives us a way to overcome. He gives us a way to overcome. Verse 9, he says, resist him. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
The answer is not to allow the enemy to destroy and defeat us, but rather to stand firm, to stand strong, to stand assured in the grace and love of God in your life. We quote again from that sermon from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, The conflict may be long, but the victory is absolutely sure. Oh, poor soul, do but keep near to the cross and thou art safe. Throw thine arms around a dying Savior. Let the droppings of His blood fall on thy sins. And even if thou canst not see Him, still believe Him. Still say, I know that He came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, and I will cling to the sinner Savior as my only hope and trust. Then let Satan roar. He cannot hurt. Let him rage. His fury is vain. He may but show his teeth, for he certainly cannot bite. Resist. Steadfast in the faith. You want to know how you defeat the enemy in your life? Very simple. You remind yourself Jesus Christ died for your sins. He has forgiven you of your sins. He has risen again. And when you confessed your sins, He forgave you of those sins. And no matter what comes your way in life, I am forgiven. The hope of the gospel is what helps us to overcome the attacks of the enemy. It's not some special quote or some special saying, whatever else. It's simply reminding yourself, Satan, you are defeated. I am a child of God. There is nothing that can separate me from the love of God. So hit me with your best shot. I am still forgiven. I am still loved. I am still His child. That's why Paul said nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You need to remember that. Because it sounds good today and you're going to say amen today and you're going you're to pat me on the back and say good sermon today. But guess what's going to happen tomorrow morning? You're going to get up and you're going to be discouraged. That person at work that you know, you love in the Lord, you just don't like very much is going to be whatever kind of mood they're in. Everything that can go wrong is going to go wrong. But no matter what comes your way, you remind yourself, I am forgiven. I am a child of God. I am firm in my faith. I know that when I die, I will be with the Lord. So today is the day and this is the way. Sorry, I'm with Jesus. You can't take that away, Satan. We do this firm in our faith. We also do this remembering. Remembering we're not the only ones. We're not the only ones. He says there what? Knowing your brotherhood around the world is going through the same kinds of suffering. We're not the only ones. We're not the only ones under attack from the enemy. One of the things I try to do when I get discouraged about where we are in this country and what's going on, I try to remember, no matter how bad things are, what we have in this country is still so much better than most of the world. I went to persecution.org, the website of the International Christian Concern, 
wanting to try to monitor what's happening to the church around the world. This is from Thursday and Wednesday of this last week. One headline said this, and I think I have them there on the screen now. I don't know if you are up there on the next one, but it says this, filthy Christians are denied residence in a Pakistani Muslim neighborhood. The word filthy Christians, of course, are in quotes. Muslim neighborhood in Pakistan would not allow these Christians in there. Next headline, Algeria loosens COVID restrictions but continues to restrict religious freedom. Algeria. I mean, I guess we could say California. I think it's the same thing. But Third one, China silences persecuted priests. The head of a Vatican deal we knew. Vatican's working with communist China for some reason, yet oblivious or blind or willfully ignorant of the fact that China is persecuted even the Catholic priesthood there in their own country. Gunmen killed four Christians in Belza State in Nigeria. This is some of the things that have happened to our brothers and sisters around the world this past week or two. This is the plight of other believers even as we, as you and I, are worried about small and trivial things and doesn't even touch on the multitude of those that maybe died from this coronavirus, of believers, those who have lost jobs and lost businesses in this worldwide depressed economic state that this thing has brought. I could go on and on, but the point is this. We are not alone. We are not the only ones. You're not the only ones going through hardship in your life. And the same God who has been faithful to them will be faithful to you as well. He is watching over you just as much as He is watching over them. I quoted what a friend we have in Jesus at Him. Of course, most of you know who Matt Maher is. He's made a career of rewriting hymns. I don't know if he's ever sung an original song. He just rewrites hymns and we all sing them. But he wrote a song called What a Friend. It says this, everybody has trials and temptation. Everybody knows heartbreak and isolation. But we can lay our burdens down. We can lay our burdens down. What a friend we have in Jesus. East to west, my sins are gone. I see grace on every horizon and forever and ever His heart is my home. The second verse says, everybody has fears. Everybody got worries. Everybody knows sorrow, devastation. Guess what? We can lay our burdens down. You're not alone in this fight. Many others suffering just as you. Trust God and lean upon Him. So we remain faithful by practicing humility, by remaining alert and focused, and then we remain faithful by keeping our eyes on the prize. Keeping our eyes on the prize. Look at verse 10. 
after you had suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you have suffered a little while, you say it feels like a lot longer than a little while, but guess what? In light of eternity, your 70, your 80, your 90, your 100 years old will not be that much. But guess what will happen? He will call you to His eternal glory. He will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen. He will establish you. Apostle Paul prayed for God to remove His persecution, His suffering. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9, he said, So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with God that this thorn would leave me. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That God, that God who has called you to eternal glory, not to temporal glory, God who has called you to something that is so far greater than this world. You remember who won the Super Bowl 10 years ago? Maybe you can think of it. I mean, if you say the Patriots, probably a good guess, but whatever. <laughs> Remember who won the World Series 15 years ago? Again, you could probably say the Yankees and probably be a good guess, but the fact is, these things are all temporal. But I promise you, one moment in eternity with Christ, and all the trials, all the tribulations, all that we face down this world will seem like nothing. I like these words from Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. It says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them. And guess what God will do? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There, nor will there be mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. Just as you ladies held your children and wiped their tears. Maybe some of you guys did too, I guess. I don't know. I just told them to suck it up, get over it. Probably not the best thing to say, but... Just as you held your children, God Himself will come down. Take the pain, the sorrow, the heartache. Take it all away. God Himself and the person of Christ will be with us forever and ever. I like how this book ends. And I'll finish. Verse 12. Peter says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I write, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In other words, Peter is saying, Look, Silvanus was writing down these words. He was my scribe as I was dictating them to him. 
I see him as a faithful brother in Christ. And I exhort you, this is the grace of God remaining faithful. Stand firm in the grace that is at God. And then what does he say? He says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. And this is good because she, some of your translations may be translated the church who is at Babylon. Babylon was not a literal town like you think of, but rather a symbolic name for the city of Rome. She who has had Babylon, the church, even in the midst of Rome, a godless, pagan, sinful, wretched world, city, even in that city there was a church that was faithful to God. Say, oh, things are bad in our country. Guess what? They've been bad before. But notice what else he says. So does Mark, my son. You remember Mark, don't you? Of course you do. His name is on a book of the Bible. But Mark was the young man who Paul and Silas took with him on, a, on their first missionary journey. And Mark got homesick. Paul and Silas broke up, or Paul and Barnabas, I should say. Paul wound up going with Silas. Paul and Barnabas split because of Mark. Barnabas wanted to bring him back to journey with him, and Paul didn't want to because he quit and he went home. And yet Peter has found him faithful. See, there's Sylvanus who's remained faithful. There's a faithful church in the middle of a godless world and there's a young man who fell and yet they came back to God and God has considered him faithful. My point is this. We've messed up. We've made mistakes. We've fallen. We've done things we shouldn't have. And yet when we come back to God, confess our sins and we make things right with Him, we go right back on the journey. We continue to be faithful. None of us will ever pass this exam without messing up. But when you mess up, let me challenge you. Get up and go on. Keep on going. Keep on serving God. Keep on loving God. When, when life throws a curveball at you and knocks you off your feet, get up and serve God. You have trials and temptations and you succumb to them. Get up. Be faithful to Him. And then let's pray this morning, shall we? Lord, I don't know when the end is coming, when the end will be. Pray that I'll have a long and happy, successful life and see grandchildren and buy that winter home in Florida and whatever else we're supposed to do as we get older. But Lord, I don't know if that will happen. God, I don't know what's coming my way. I pray that I'll celebrate my 50th anniversary, 60th. God, we don't know what tomorrow holds. Lord, if today is the day you come again, I'm waiting for you. I want to hear you say, well done. 
Lord, help me to keep my eyes steadfast in you, to keep my heart humble before you, to always be alert for the enemy that's trying to destroy me, and to realize that that the stuff of this world is so temporal. It's all going to pass away. It's all going to fade away. What matters is faithful service and obedience to you. Let me do that, I pray. Let me exhibit that, I ask. And Lord, there's someone here who stumbled, not been faithful like they should, I pray. Today, your forgiveness will be exhibited in their life. They will continue on this journey. They will hear you say, well done. Help us to be faithful, I ask, even in a world that is totally falling apart. Lord, if things get crazy in the next few weeks or months or years, pray that you will look down and see right here at the corner of Lehigh and Mechanic Street a church that is faithfully serving you.